You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, I'm going to encourage you to get out a Bible. Um, they, we've got some uh, in your chairs there if you need to grab one, or perhaps you got one on your phone. So you can follow along in Esther chapter 2 today. And as you're uh, flipping there, let me just show you, it starts by saying the phrase, after these things. So chapter 2 opens with, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, had abated, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. After these things uh, means we need to remind ourselves of what just happened in chapter 1. After what things are we talking about here? Well, if you remember the backstory, and all these are online, by the way, if you want to get caught up, a lot of history last week, a lot of backstory, you have um, the, the uh, southern kingdom, Judah, was taken into captivity by Babylon. Then Persia came in and overtook Babylon. King Cyrus did that. And so there were some Jews that returned back to their land and some that stayed in Persia, this Babylonian region, um, they, especially in the capital city, this big citadel, uh, the big fortified city of Susa. And so the story of Esther is the story of some people who are Jewish, and, and there's Persians as well, who are living in Susa, the capital city, they did not return back to their homeland. So Cyrus is the Persian king that came in and, um, and uh, overtook Babylon. Uh, Darius was his son. And then Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, it says here, is the king uh, of Persia that we see in this text. Um, uh, his father, Darius, had been uh, kind of humiliated by the Greeks. And so Xerxes wants to immediately, he wants to go and avenge his uh, avenge his father and avenge Persia upon the, uh, the Greeks. And so he's about to go. He had to put down some other rebellions. He's about to go and uh, take the battle to the Greeks. But first, he has a planning party where he gets all the, the leaders of the nation for months, months, months. He gets them together, uh, and they're doing a planning of how they're going to attack. And then they have, uh, after their big party, they have another party for a week where they're like, we're not talking business. And they just party for a week. And if you remember, Xerxes was having his banquet, and then Vashti, his queen, was having a banquet for all the women uh, in another place. Some think it was because she was, uh, she was against the idea of going to war with Greece. It's possible. It's probably speculative, but uh, it's possible. Um, but she's having kind of her own party. And so what, she, uh, what, um, what happens near the end of the seven days partying, all of these leaders of the nation are there with Xerxes. And, they, and then he decides, I'm going to summon my wife, Vashti, to come and parade in front of people in her crown. Um, she's lovely to look at, the Bible says, and so he basically wants to get all these drunk guys and get his wife and go, come here, and just kind of walk around in front of them so they can see how beautiful you are. She doesn't like that, so she doesn't show up, which means now Xerxes is going to have a problem in the empire with all the women in the empire because, hey, if Vashti can kind of be this rebellious woman, then the rest of us can be as well. If she can rebel against her husband, the rest of us can rebel against, against our husband and our family. And, um, and so one of the counselors gets, several of them, but one of them in particular, Memucan, gets with Xerxes and says, you're about to have a problem. Really, he's saying, we're all going to have a problem when we go back to our provinces. And so Xerxes gives an edict to the entire nation that he does two things. One is he says, uh, Vashti, you are gone. And he turns this in his mind in a way politically as a positive to say, now it's like, hey, even Vashti couldn't do that. So you, you otherwise need to just be careful here. And then he gives the big edict that says the husband can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants in his household. 
Let's be very, very clear about something. Um, this is not even remotely close to a Christian edict. This is not even close to in line with a New Testament ethic of what does marriage look like. When um, in, in the New Testament, when it says the husband's ahead of the wife, actually what it's saying is, what does it say to do? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. You die for her. It says he gave himself up for her. You use the position that God has given you to sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. What is Xerxes doing? I'm going to give you a position so she now has to sacrifice and do anything that you want her to do. So he gives this, this, this awful decree out to the nation to try and solve his political problem. And then what we have between chapters 1 and 2 is about three to four years where he is fighting a war with Greece, and it is going incredibly poorly. And so it says, after these things, after all that happened in chapter 1, and now what's happening in chapter, all the fighting with Greece that's going terrible, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, had abated, he remembered Vashti. He remembered that queen that he had banished and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he is sitting in a moment right now. He is not doing well at all. Persia is being depleted by the Greek empire. In fact, there's a lady, Karen Jobes, that wrote a commentary, and she says, his humiliating defeat depleted the treasuries of the Persian empire and discredited him in the eyes of his subjects. There's a historian Herodotus during this time as he's trying to fight the Greeks here that let's just say it was a time of over-self-indulgence for King Xerxes. Uh, it was every type of pleasure imaginable. He tried to just have it. Um, of course, it didn't fulfill him. You can see this, and he was still miserable through it. But anything he wanted, he just took. Th this, by the way, is what happens when we suffer defeat sometimes as well. Suffering defeat can often be, I'm not as in control as I thought I was, and now I suffered defeat. And so what I'm going to do to respond to that is I'm going to, I'm going to find things I can control so I can have little mini victories in my life. So this is why people turn to, I can control getting a pleasurable sense of, eat, of overeating. And so people will overeat or overdrink. Um, there is uh, cutting is a big one now, or even just inflicting kind of pain on yourself to go. It's like, it's like I'm getting pain, but I'm, I'm, I'm controlling the pain as it's coming. That's why people do it. It's epidemic, especially with, young, with, uh, with girls, with young girls. Um, this is why people move into isolation a lot of times when they're experiencing a lot of pain in their life is I can remove all these X factors out here that I have to respond to and I might have another defeat. I might have something else I can't control if I have too many people. So they back into isolation. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. It's a place that says I control my own life instead of I've relinquished it to the Lord and he controls it. I never had control to begin with. But what Xerxes is doing is he is out of control, he's embarrassed, he's hurting, he's lonely, he has to reestablish his power and bolster his reputation, heal his wounded pride that he's going through, and not having a queen is not helping. He is probably 33 years old at this point, and so what he is about to do is he is going to start by having a kingdom-wide, and it starts as a beauty pageant. 
And he is going to send uh, his emissaries out in the empire to find the most beautiful women, young women, and bring them in. Um, and there's going to be this beauty pageant to see who's going to be the next queen. That's where we're going today. Look at verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, that's the capital, the citadel, under the custody of, here's another important figure, Haggai the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And then it says this pleased the king and and he did so. Go find a replacement queen in the empire is what they just said. Now, a couple things to know about this. The word here, uh, it talks about let the young woman who pleases the king. It has that phrase in the ESV. It says young woman all the time. Um, I, we're not real sure how to translate it. It's the Hebrew word na'ara. The, I think it's the NIV. Captures the essence of what he's trying to say. And it doesn't translate it young woman. It says, and let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. The word can really mean an unmarried adolescent female. These are teenagers probably. In fact, it's hard to know how old Esther was exactly. If I were guessing by piecing some things together, if I were gracious, I would say she might be 20, but probably not. Go get all the teenage girls from the empire and bring them to the capital. Let's not blow over this. You need to understand what is happening here. Remember, this is a culture where Um, People married young as well, and so this is more than likely very young women. Now, here's a question that comes up. Um, Does this mean that Xerxes sent his people out, and as you see in almost every depiction of this, there's books that are written about this that that sort of add to it a little bit. There's movies about the story of Esther. The way it's depicted is it's these, these soldiers of Xerxes that go out, and they're basically like kidnapping people in the middle of the night. And I will say, if you already suspect it that way, and you read this, it fits with that kind of an idea, just to give you an idea of what's actually happening here. Um, it would fit with, the, um, uh, with kind of the demeanor of the empire as well. Um, the, Herodotus tells a story, the, the, um, the historian talks about that they would get every year 500 young boys, and they were, they were gathered, and they would be turned into eunuchs to serve in the Persian court. And so it seems like everybody in the empire, male, female, young, old, was at the disposal of the king and of his whims. Some people think, yes, they have, this, was, this was going and, and, and taking people in the night because they would say, well, Esther got picked. And if this was something that was voluntary, surely she wouldn't have been the one, you know, surely she wouldn't have chosen this. You know, she's the hero of the story. And I get that argument. Um, I would say I don't know that we're real sure because the other thing I would offer is as they go out to do this, um, and, and it says gather the women, could just mean the word assemble. Go see who's interested in this and assemble them and then bring them in to the king. And if you are a father in the Persian Empire and your job is trying to find a husband for your daughter... And then you hear that the king of the world, in their mind, Xerxes, think, don't think like a Christian for just a minute, that the king of the world, Xerxes, is out looking for a new queen of the land. I am quite certain there were some women that sort of put themselves, or fathers, that said, go and put them in the way so that they might be chosen. So we're not real sure. Let me just say, as a Christian, 
All of this makes my stomach turn. I want you to get in the story, though, to try and understand exactly what's happening here. And there's two new people introduced. One is Mordecai, who's a relative of Esther. Some think he's even the hero of the story. Some think he even wrote the book, actually. And then finally, we are going to get to meet Esther. In verse 5, it says this. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, or the citadel, excuse me, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. That's a reference to the Babylonian uh, captivity. And so Mordecai, we'll see in just a minute, um, Esther's an orphan, and he has taken in Esther. Like I said, some people think he might even be um, right there with Esther as the heroes of this actual story. Now, very quickly about Mordecai, he seems to be a Persian official, he seemed, he's Jewish, but he seems to have worked his way into the, um, the Persian government and have some kind of official status. There's some, um, some documents that have been uncovered that, uh, that have the name Mardukei, Mordecai, um, listed twice, and there's payments that are made to him, and so he appears to be like a treasurer or an accountant in the Persian empire with some kind of voice in the Persian empire. It talks, about, um, it talks about he is sitting at the king's gate, which was an expression, that's where business happened, and so he seemed to have some kind of influence here. But really what we'll see is he brought up Esther. That's the main thing from this story to know. Verse 7, it says this, and now we get to meet Esther. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So her name is Hadassah in Hebrew. That's the name she grew up with. And then as a part of the Persian Empire, she took on the name Esther as well. Um, this is not uncommon, by the way. It's not necessarily just a like a worldly compromise to take on two names like that. It was very common. You might know um, Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You probably don't, but you might know them as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had their Hebrew names and they had their Babylonian names as well. Or Saul from the New Testament, probably his Jewish name. And then as a part of the Roman Empire, as a Roman citizen, um, you see him referred to as Paul. As well, so this is a very common thing. I think she's the only one in here that is uh, that that it mentions both of her names: Hadassah, her Hebrew name, and then Esther, her Persian name as well. And there's one interpreter that says this. He says the fact that she's the only one that has two names in this book. He says this is the author's way of depicting Esther as a young woman trying to live in two worlds: the Jewish world in which she was raised, and the opulent world of the Persian court into which she was thrust. Um, I got to fast forward or none of this is going to make sense. Let me tell you what's about to happen in chapter four. Um, so there's gonna, they're going to have this kingdom-wide beauty pageant. There's more details I'll show you in just a minute. Um, chapter three, there's going to be an edict that goes out. Um, the king is tricked into saying, go and kill all the Jews in the empire. And then um, Esther is the one that is called upon. She hasn't revealed that she's Jewish. Now she is going to go stand before the king, let, reveal her identity, reveal that she's Jewish, and say, don't kill these people. She is going to go be between um, the king and the people. She is going to stand up to the king. That's what's coming, and you'll see why that's important here 
in just a minute. Now, the big reason, you'll see this in a couple weeks, is she's going before the king and they're going, you know you will be killed if you do this. And then she offers the famous line, she says, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. That's what's coming in a couple weeks. It's important to know that because verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who, was in, who had charge of the women. This is Xerxes' initiative to call these women. What is Esther to do? Here it is, verse 9, and the young women, and the young woman, that's Esther, pleased him, that's Haggai, who's in charge of the, the women, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics, her portion of food, and her seven chosen, with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Haggai liked her, and so he took her and kind of put her in this most likely to succeed kind of place. He put these women around her that would be with her, that would help her, and they would go through this beautification for a year, a long, long process, and he liked her, and so he was doing everything to say, Xerxes, pick her, Xerxes, pick her, Xerxes, pick her. One of the words here um, has um, almost like a, a structural connotation, like there's a building, like she probably got put in the best room or maybe she had the best views and things like that. And it's as though he's trying to say, um, you can see the palace, you can see where you will live, start living now in light of that. That seems to be what's going on here. Verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. She hadn't told anybody she was Jewish. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. This, this word, um, I should just say, when it says Mordecai had commanded, it could be um, translated he counseled or he warned her what would happen if she revealed that she was Jewish, things might go uh, badly for her. So they would stay there for 12 months. It was this uh, time of preparation. And so this is, um, uh, <clears throat> this is a whole bunch of women together that are about to go in a contest to vie for the affection of Xerxes to try and become queen. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women, woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem into the king's palace. Here's what's going to happen. All these women, there's, there's two harems. One is the harems of the virgins, and then they would take her from that. She would go spend one night with the king. When she went to spend one night with the king, she would be able to take with her, uh, she would be able to choose any clothes, any jewelry, anything like that that she wanted that she thought might be pleasing to the king, and she would go in with that. Now, after she spent a night with the king, she can't go back to the harem with the virgins. She goes to the, the, the second harem probably to live the rest of her life in utter obscurity. Living in the palace, but living alone. It's not a great life. Let me just pause for a moment. Because <clears throat> I don't like talking about these things, and because we're so far removed from it, to just go, gosh, wasn't that gross, and then just sort of keep on moving on. This is pretty horrific, what's happening. And it's interesting because I look at this and go, man, I wish I could go back and change that. I got wife and two daughters. I look and go, man, I wish I, could, I wish I could go back and do something about that. 
One of the messages of the book of Esther is quite simply this, that whether it's the treatment of women in a culture, which happens not this exactly, but things like this happen in certain communist countries, for example, certain Muslim-majority countries this happens, certain uh, tribes uh, and throughout the world that this happens, this kind of thing happens. And for me, I look and go, I can't go back and fix that. Is there anything I can do today to help right injustices. And if you look at the injustices in the world, at some point, don't Christian, I mean, at some point, I just feel like, I feel like I just got to throw my hands up. I just can't fix it all. And the point of the book of Esther is going to be this, that even though, you remember last week, the name of God isn't mentioned, God isn't mentioned, God is seeing everything that's happening, and they are going to pay for what they have done. They might think there is no accountability in the world, but a Christian can arrest going, even if I can't fix everything, there's all the injustice in the world. God one day will. That's how Christians can rest. Here's what would happen in that evening with the king. She would go in, verse 14, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, I think, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came, listen to this, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she blank. What do you think? Don't look ahead. What do you think it says? Don't say it out loud either. What do you think it says? She's Jewish. Everything that's happening so far, man, in that, in that ancient Near East culture, in that Persian culture, everything is pretty much acceptable. Except, I will, I will say this, one commentator, and I couldn't find his first source, but I trust this guy, said that when, um, when this started happening, when, when, or actually it was when Xerxes gave his edict, he said there was one group in the empire that frustrated him because they didn't comply, the Jews. They wouldn't live like that. They were going to live how God told them to live. What do you think? The next line should be here for Esther, this hero of the faith. It's her night now. She's been preparing for an entire year. She is this young woman who's supposed to go and sleep with the king out of wedlock. What do you think it says next? Let's look at it. Excuse me just a second. Six when the turn came for Esther to go into the king... She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had the charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. As she's going in to have her night with the king, it says she is doing well getting on Haggai's good side so she can get on the good side of Xerxes. She is picking exactly what Haggai tells her to pick to give her the best chance to go and to win the affections of the king. She seems to be planning this. She seems to be okay with this. Look at verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the year, in the seventh year of his reign, that's um, December to January in the Babylonian calendar, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. 
He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther has done it. She has gone from this obscure Jewish woman in this huge Persian empire. She's an an orphan female in this heavily male-dominated culture, and now she's the queen. And she's maybe 20. Here's the question that I'm wrestling with. How did she get there? Is going in to have her night with the king okay? I found about six different reasons why people gave to say, yes, it's okay that she did. Let me try and summarize them for you. Um, Number one, well, it it doesn't explicitly condemn it in the text. It doesn't say that what she did was bad, and because it didn't say that in the text, then at least it's not explicit that what she did was bad. Second reason that people give is it was a different time in a different culture. It's very difficult for us in 2023 to even remotely understand what was happening there. The third reason people give to say it's acceptable what she did is, I I summed it up like this, brief sin, long rewards. Brief sin, long rewards. Yes, it's a mistake, but look at what happened from it that she was made queen, and then the rest of the story is she ends up saving her people as a result. Number four, she's basically married. It was already in God's providence that it was going to happen. Maybe even he, he chose her before she had to fall into sin, and so they're basically married is what some people say. Number five, which is the one that brings me, the, I have the most compassion for, is she didn't really have a choice. Number six, she's the hero of the story. She's the one that's going to stand up to the king later. Surely she couldn't have done this thing and it be sin. There must be some other explanation. Or, you know, I, I would even say for that matter, Mordecai is one of the heroes. Why isn't he, if this is sinful, why isn't he throwing himself between Esther and Xerxes? Why isn't he saying, I will pay any price so this doesn't have to happen? He, there's no really no indication that he's okay with it or not okay with it. This is a really tricky kind of dilemma, isn't it? In fact, if you watch, like we just watched a movie, um, uh, it's PG actually, about Esther. It's called One Night with the King. It's 15 or 20 years old now, but um, you can tell when you see movies like this, or we saw the, play, the musical in Branson, um, and we've seen other movies and things, people don't know what to do with this scene. And so um, in, in the one we just saw, for example, she walks in to see him, and they're just sitting there chatting and hanging out, and then he just thinks she's beautiful, and so she puts the, he, he puts the queen's crown on her head. Doesn't seem to be the indication of what actually happened here, though. There were, um, in, in antiquity, they were uncomfortable with this, and so um, in the first or second century BC, there was actually, an ad- people put an addition to the Bible that was a, um, in the Greek language, they added something that said that Esther said um, she had not violated the food laws and that she had, quote, abhorred the bed of the uncircumcised, meaning she didn't go into him, which is not what the Bible says. So what do we do with this? The arguments, again, if the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn it here, in fact, she seems to be rewarded after what she did, I would just remind you that just because the Bible in that instant doesn't condemn something or commend something doesn't necessarily make it right or wrong. 
to give you an example of that, Xerxes has just given this horrible decree to the entire nations. And if you'll notice, they never stop down and say it's okay or not. We should just know as Christians that obviously it's not. So just because it doesn't explicitly condemn it, or the way we say it is sometimes the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's just describing what's happening. It's not prescribing. You're not supposed to model and emulate what they're doing. Number two, different time, different culture. I don't know if that argument is going to hold up either. Boy, what a, what a slippery slope that would be, wouldn't it? To just say, if you, yeah, we know the Bible and what she should have done, but at the same time, you know, the culture, I mean, it was just so different. I mean, you, you take issues today, and man, sometimes they're split 50-50 down the middle in our culture today. What does the culture even say? We don't even know. Culturally, what Xerxes did with his decree was acceptable. He is the creator of culture in his world, and so by that logic, you'd have to say his decree was acceptable as well. So I don't, I don't think the different time, different culture holds the idea of brief sin, long rewards. This one still comes up today. I'll lie a little bit to get that promotion. I'll leave my spouse because I know the rest of my days will be better apart from him or apart from her. That's, the, that's what happens <clears throat> today. I would not justify sin based on the reward or the perceived benefit that you may get from it, but instead to say, if sin breaks the heart of God, why do you think it would ever satisfy yours? Number four, basically married. They're basically married, so what she did was not that big a deal. Do you know how much time I spend in premarital counseling saying, don't act married until you're married? You are entering into a covenant relationship, and so there are things that are preserved until you are in that covenant relationship. Number five, I have a lot of compassion at this one. She didn't really have a choice. She did, but it probably would have cost her her life. What is the thing we extol Esther for later in the book? She's going to have to walk into the king when almost certainly it's going to cost her her life. And what does she say? If I die, I die. And in this instance, I'd say, I get it. But it's compromise. One of the biggest reasons people give is Esther couldn't have done something bad because she's the hero of the story. And let me just remind you that, yes, we'll get to the very heroic thing she does. And I have to tell you, we watched this movie the other night, and I'm watching it. Nikki and Abigail are sitting up there on the, on the couch, and we're watching this story. And the scene where she goes in to stand up to the king, I think I was the only one, I am just crying when we saw this musical, we were out in Branson, we saw the musical, and Esther starts marching up to go and defy the king. This is later in chapter four. I'm watching it, and I'm just sitting here like this, like not wanting anybody to see that I am just swelling up with tears because I'm watching and going, the people are saved because this young woman said, if I die, I die. I'm going to do what's right. That's the story of the book of Esther. But before that, I think she erred. I think it's important to know this and to just let our minds settle there to say, even our heroes are sinners too. Moses 
started out as a murderer. God came and said, I'm going to use you to do this. And he said no, like three different ways. God finally went, fine, I'm sending someone with you, but you're doing it. Abraham kept lying about his wife to foreign kings. Noah was a drunkard. Jacob lied. Gideon started out hiding in fear from God. Rahab was a prostitute. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Peter had absolutely no self-control. James and John were completely self-righteous, and Paul murdered Christians. That is the backstory of some of the greatest people of the faith. And so to look at this and to see is what she did, is there something acceptable about it that we're just not seeing in the text or not, we need to remember, even if that wasn't one, she's not perfect. But God still used this young woman to do an absolutely amazing thing. Let me tell you what this means for us. Let me give you what the application for today is not. The application today is not God uses people even after they've committed egregious sins. So everybody feel free to go commit egregious sins and then God will end up, God can still use you. That's not the message. The message is no matter what is in your past, God can still use you. This is not a go sin away, everybody. J.C. Ryle says it like this. He says, the man must be in an unhealthy state of soul who can think that all that Jesus suffered and yet cling to those sins for which that suffering was undergone. Another way to think of it, though, is no matter what is in your past, God can use you. God can use you in remarkable, remarkable ways. Because the point of this is not all the plot points of Esther. The point of this is we're supposed to see a God who is above this all, who takes this unlikely woman and uses her. It is never, ever too late. Your past sin, your sin you're living in right now, which I pray to God will one day be your past, is never an excuse to say, I will live a mediocre Christian life. God can take it and he can restore you in powerful ways. But we feel those words of condemnation. Martin Luther says it like this. He says, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me greatly, for I know that Christ died for sinners. I look at this and go, man, you're not done yet. Esther wasn't done yet. She had the opportunity to make an incredibly, I think, virtually impossible choice that would probably cost her her life, and she didn't do it. And then a couple chapters later, she has, I think it's even more difficult than this, and she has to walk into the king, and she gets to a point where she can say, if I die, I die. I don't know where you feel like right now. I compromise all the time. It doesn't cost me my life. I'm just a compromiser. Compromise. I'll readily compromise. Wherever you are, God wants to take you from here, wherever, to being the person that would go, no matter what it costs me, I will proclaim the goodness of God. I will follow God with everything that I have. You are not done yet. It's pretty ironic. There's a, a woman who writes in the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. She says, from a Jewish perspective... Esther spoils and demeans herself by acceding to the pagan king's desires. Yet as queen, Esther will be used of God despite her impurity and shame to protect the lineage of the seed of woman, Jesus Christ, who will ultimately crush the head 
of the serpent. Interestingly, I don't know how this would work exactly, but let's say she was Persian and she did what she did, but she didn't serve Yahweh, she served the Persian gods. If you start reading about especially the seven major Persian gods, they would say, kill her. She has erred, kill her. She has defiled me, take her life. Because the God of the Persians condemns, but what does God do? The God of Israel restores. 